what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? What I mean is, can you be scary? Oh, oh, I didn't know what you were asking me. Can I be scary? What do you think of this? You like it? Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Nostalgium Arcana, uh, a show where each week we take pop culture, ephemera, movies, toys, TV shows, what have you, that for some reason have not yet left our cultural zeitgeist and add an entry to the Nostalgium Arcanum, our uh, podcastical book of, uh, of ancient entries that still delight us. I am uh, your host, Doug Leaf, and today's entry point is is Beetlejuice. I'll only say it the once, at least for now. Uh, and I think this is a fitting place to start our podcast. Side note, um, this first few episodes are going to be a little bit skewed because uh, we're releasing them uh, at Halloween time. So uh, this the first like five entries are going to all be something related to horror or Halloween. Um, normally we won't be going quite that macabre all the time, but... Um, I could not do a stretch of Halloween episodes for Halloween because, damn it, it's my nostalgia podcast and it's my favorite holiday. And I think that's a good place to start with this particular uh, item because, for me, uh, I- I'm a kid of the 80s. And so Beetlejuice, for me, uh, came out in 1988, so I was eight years old. And uh, what an awesome way to start kind of looking at Halloween um, because I was just at that point where I was graduating from things that are, you know, Halloweenish and tame, let's say, uh, Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown, and about to leap forward into things that were spookier and scarier. And Beetlejuice kind of finds its footing right in the middle. It's just accessible enough uh, for almost everybody, although I will say this is, I believe, the first F-bomb I can remember uh, seeing in a movie. Um, but aside from that one curse word, uh, everything in here is just tame enough to be palatable for kids, um, and just spooky enough to be more interesting for adults. Um, I think we should probably start with this one, uh, talking about kind of the origins of the script and how it eventually came to be the movie that we love, uh, before kind of diving into the, the nuts and bolts of the actual movie itself. Uh, the film first started life in 1981 uh, as a screenplay by uh, a writer called Michael McDowell. Uh, McDowell had uh, started off by doing uh, much more, uh, basically writing novels, and he wanted to break into uh, screenwriting. He wrote this script for Beetlejuice, uh, and he got a call back from the studio. And first, he was you know, uh, really excited about this. You know, he's like, oh my God, I wrote a script. This is my big break. Uh, and when he finally got to the meeting, he was told, Basically, why are you wasting your life with this? Uh, it was a real, real um, slap in the face for him. But he kept at it. Uh, the script kind of stayed alive. It was rewritten multiple times. Um, one of the things that kind of was notable about the original script 
is it wasn't really a comedy. Uh, certainly not the the kind of madcap hijinks that you would associate with the finished product. Um, it was much more of a horror movie. The the Beetlejuice in the original one was much scarier. Um, the and he was actually said to be a demon uh, as opposed to the final movie where he is a ghost. Um, and uh, he would even make an appearance at the end by revealing his true form, which had classic, you know, uh, Dante's Inferno, leathery wing uh, kind of appearance. The other thing that was notable in here was just the, the even the like the moment to moment macabre things that happened in the movie are much more graphic. Um, one of the things that survives from that original draft is if you notice um, right after the car crash, which was going to be much more uh, graphic, um, that car crash was going to include... Uh, Barbara Maitland's arm getting crushed, and w- which is why, if you notice in the final movie, when they return home, Barbara makes a, a comment about her arm still feels frozen. That was meant to be kind of a, a nod to one of the things they would do in this movie, where everybody kind of remains in the same state in which they died, even if that meant they were flattened by a truck. Uh, you remain flattened forever as a ghost. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that were in the original movie, and it was probably more akin to something like a Wishmaster, you know, like kind of just this general, you know, mediocre horror movie where, um, you know, the ghosts want to summon a demon to scare away the living, uh, and that just kind of sets about happening. The, what really makes this musical, I'm mean, sorry, not the musical, we, there is a stage musical, we won't really be talking about it here, this is just focused on the, the, uh, the 1988 movie, uh, nor are we really going to focus on the, uh, the 1990s cartoon, which is pretty cool in its own right, but uh, it's so hard to find pieces of it online uh, to watch, I wasn't really able to, to do that kind of research. Uh, but getting back to Beetlejuice the movie. So uh, the, the screenplay, screenplay was rewritten by Warren Scarn. And Universal just, you know, as I said before, wasn't really hot on this movie. They sold it to David Geffen, who uh, was uh, getting into the movie business at this time. And David Geffen decided, hey, this Tim Burton guy had a big hit with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Let's give it to him. And I think this movie, uh, more than any other Tim Burton movie, this is almost like someone finally let Tim Burton off the leash. There are weird moments in Pee-wee's Big Adventure that clearly hint at his ability to do this movie. Most, I would think, uh, the Large Marge sequence, for example, uh, is you know the obvious comparison. But not just the Large Marge sequence. If you look at Pee-wee's Big Adventure, one of the things that kind of sets it apart is this very '50s kitsch that is kind of infused in the movie. If you look at like the house that Pee-wee lives in, even his bike kind of looks like a car from the 50s. And this movie kind of has that as well. There's a, a clash going on here between um, the Maitland's kind of very um, conservative 50s sensibilities and the Dietz's more modern um, viewpoint. But Tim Burton really here, when you think about what is Tim Burton's style, he has this incredibly distinctive visual style. And it, this movie, way more than Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he kind of goes full bore. We get the, the classic black and white stripes on Beetlejuice's clothes and on the sandworms and on um, uh, Mrs. Dietz's clothes, even are the same kind of black and white things. Um, the, the kinds of monsters you see, the environments you see, um, especially in the netherworld, all of this is really kind of the things you associate with Tim Burton, even more so than something like Batman, which would come next. 
Batman has a lot of uh, obvious Tim Burtonisms as well because it is gothic and dark, but it is also in within sort of the bounding box of Batman comic books. This is a, as an original thing. Beetlejuice kind of visually has a lot more in common with Edward Scissorhands, uh, and I think it's Tim Burton's idea to make it funnier. He, for example, does more distinctive things with the music. He, he's the one who I think is responsible for changing the Maitland's taste uh, from kind of classic 50s doo-wop. He says, let's make it Harry Belafonte. He's the one who's bringing in Deo and jump in the line. And that is a lot more distinctive than just sort of your average, say, Temptation song. Uh, the other thing that Tim Burton brings with him is Danny Elfman. Uh, this is Danny Elfman's, I believe, second major film score. They're, they're certainly their second of many, many, many collaborations. And Danny Elfman's contributions here, I don't think can be understated. His This is one of my favorite personal uh, Danny Elfman scores. It does his sort of, you know, minor key Halloween circus shtick. Um, but it certainly fits because that's what the title character is. He's a ringmaster. At one point, he literally appears sort of as a, as a human circus at, at the end of the movie. Um, but within the kind of like bombastic circus score that you get in this movie, you also get uh, Beetlejuice's uh, themes in the movie. It's more of a like uh, this kind of uh, screechy violin. And it sounds like a, a piece of music called Dance Macabre. I don't know if that's intentional, but there is kind of that also is kind of noted for the same kind of violin sound. And it, it almost adds kind of a country feel. Uh, a hint of that. And we get some country stuff from Beetlejuice as well. If you recall, the, one of the first times we see him is he's doing this country western commercial for seemingly no one's benefit other than the Maitlands. And uh, I, I'll, I'll admit to this day, he sings this song at the end. I still can't understand what the words are. I forgot to watch it with the subtitles on this time. I have no idea what he's saying. But he definitely likes playing that up. Um, Beetlejuice is an interesting character. He only appears in maybe 17 minutes of the movie. But, of course, he is the title character and he dominates it. I do want to talk a little bit about the characters. Uh, I'll go more in depth about his background. But one of the interesting things in the script was trying to figure out why do they call him this. Uh, at one point, of course, uh, we see his name. His name is not spelled Beetlejuice. Um, uh, Mait Maitland uh, mispronounces it as Betelgeist. And I think for purposes of this podcast, I'm going to use the word Betelgeist just so I can differentiate between the two since spelling it on a podcast would be horrible. Um, Betelgeist, uh, Betelgeuse, is, uh, you know, uh, it's a star. Uh, it's the left shoulder of Orion. The original name for the star is actually Yad al-Jauza, which means the hand of al-Jauza. And I apologize to anyone uh, who who's Arab and has no, is like, you know, just horrified at my pronunciation, but I'm doing my best. Uh, Al Jauza is the Arabic name for that constellation. So, um, that's where the name comes from. It was, I guess, mispronounced and bastardized as it made its way West. Um, but that is Betelgeuse. It is one of the largest, uh, stars in, uh, our 
area of the cosmos, um, it's gigantic. It's actually so big that um, if it were in our solar system, it would swallow the asteroid belt. But one, the only reason I really bring that up is, yes, it's an odd name, um, but Betelgeuse in the original script is described as being a small Middle Eastern man. Now, I don't know. I wasn't able to confirm if the reason they gave him this name that comes from the Middle Eastern name of a star uh, was to make that connection. Uh, but I, I did think that was sort of interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Beetlejuice, the character. Uh, he His backstory went through multiple iterations uh, from script to script to script to script. Um, the final one we get in the film is actually fairly slim. Uh, you know, he, uh, Juno, the caseworker for the Maitlands, tells us that he was once her uh, at her pupil, her, her helper, uh, and he went, struck out on his own to be a bioexorcist, um, meaning he, of course, exorcises the living. Uh, Beetlejuice himself says a bunch of stuff about his background that, we can't really trust because he's totally unreliable. He says things like he went to Juilliard. He says, um, you know, he, what he, he gives an indication. He was at least around for the black plague, which makes him at least maybe 600 years old. Uh, but other than that, we don't know. And I think that's another interesting theme of this movie. One of the major themes of it is sort of confusion. Uh, the Maitlands are really adrift because they don't understand the rules by which the afterlife works. Normally in a fantasy film or a sci-fi film where you have some kind of supernatural um, situation, we want to know what the rules are. Uh, and I'll give a good example of where this breaks down. So, for example, in Star Wars, uh, you've got the Force, and over the course of several movies, they're they're pretty consistent on what the Force can and can't do. You know, you can move things with your mind, um, you can, uh, which is its primary function. Um, you can kind of reach out to people telepathically. Um, but in episode nine, the rise of Skywalker, one of the worst films in the franchise, uh, at one point the force is used as like a magic that has magic healing powers. Now that doesn't necessarily break the rules of the force because it's a non-existent magical concept, but it felt like a cheat because, for, you know, eight major movies and a few spinoffs, they'd never had the Force do that. It just felt like, oh, shit, we better invent a magic power. We need one. Sure, why not? Yeah, it heals people. Um, when you have a supernatural world, having a sense of at least the rules uh, makes things feel like the, the author is not cheating. Uh, think of the first Matrix movie. Same thing, right? We have a really clear sense of, Okay, you know, if you're in the Matrix, it's not real. Here's what you can and can't do. Um, here, though, the rules are very nebulous. We, we see certain things happen, and even then the movie breaks its own rules from time to time. So one of the things we know is that when the Maitlands step out of their house, they step into what is sometimes referred to as Saturn. Um, but this, this strange... World, uh, you know, where there's many moons, it looks like another planet or another dimension where the sandworms live. And not only that, but anytime they either leave and go to that world or to the nether world where uh, the bureaucracy is and Juno is, when they come back, uh, an inordinate amount of time has passed. There's a time dilation that happens whenever the Dietzes leave their house, most of the time. There's a handful of times in the movie where that doesn't happen. 
But generally, that's one rule we get. We get the obvious rule of if you say Beetlejuice's name three times, he appears. But by and large, it's not clear why is it that, for example, Lydia can see the Maitlands and until the end of the movie, no one else can. Um, the, all of these types of things happen in the movie, and it's not clear why they're happening. Why is the movie not worse for that being the case? I think it's because the whole point of the movie is to show how out of their depth the Maitlands are. We're told there are rules. The, one of the first things the Maitlands receive is the handbook for the recently deceased. The book that's supposed to explain how they are supposed to uh, now operate in their new afterlife. But, as Adam Maitland points out, uh, the book reads like stereo instructions. They find it extremely dense. Um, the few excerpts you hear are, you know, do sound like that. They're very highly technical in nature. So, when the movie is, is having things happen seemingly at random, it's doing something that I think actually Game of Thrones did very well, which is when something supernatural would happen... It would happen in a way that suggests that there are rules, you know, controlling how this works, but we don't know what they are. And that instead of being, um, you know, feeling wishy-washy, it feels scary. There's, it's a sense that something is happening and it's out of your control. It would be a little like the feeling of being just suddenly having a bag over your head and thrown into the back of a van and waking up in a country where no one speaks English. People would be talking to each other. You would be able to see certain things and understand certain things, but by and large, you would be very much adrift, just as the Maitlands are. And for me, that's one of the engines that makes this movie go. It's their inability to know what's happening. It's their very slim grasp of the rules, and, their, and it's their inability to really get anywhere that forces them to summon Beetlejuice for help. Now, of course, he, they are warned against doing that. Um, we know that Beetlejuice is unscrupulous and also that his motives are a little unclear. He never asked for payment from the Maitlands. It's not clear what his final game plan really is. And even as we kind of round the corner into the climax of the movie... Um, it's, it becomes clear that perhaps what he wants to do is marry Lydia to become alive again. He says he kind of likens it to being, uh, you know, the cartoon version of an illegal alien where I guess if, if I'm uh, in this country illegally, I can just marry a citizen and poof, I'm a citizen. Ta-da. Now, immigration law isn't quite that simple, but that's what they're going for. If he marries Lydia, he becomes human again. That's barely there in the script though you really have to kind of piece that together as you um as you watch it the, one of the first things we see from beetlejuice is his advertisement that slipped into the handbook for the recently deceased and it says beetlejuice the bio exorcist troubled by the living is death a problem and not the solution unhappy with eternity and then it says this having difficulty adjusting call beetlejuice he actually references he does residential, industrial, and commercial hauntings, which is nice. Um, the the having difficulty adjusting, I think, is one of the other main themes, and it kind of branches off from this confusion thing, uh, theme of the Maitlands not knowing what to do. Um, the movie is very much about people having trouble adjusting, not just the Maitlands adjusting to the afterlife, 
but also the Maitlands and the Dietzes adjusting to each other. Um, these people are sort of stuck in circumstances that are hard, you know, they can't really change. And they have to ultimately learn to coexist, which is what happens at the end of the movie. I think uh, the, the beginning of the movie, I guess we're going to talk about the plot in more kind of moment-to-moment detail. One of the things that uh, struck me on this watch-through was the first thing that you see in the movie is after, after this uh, shot of the town of Winter River, Connecticut, and then uh, fading into the model that's in the Maitland's attic, you see a house, uh, their house, the model of it, and a spider crawls over it. Something is invading the Maitland's house. And Adam Maitland, rather than killing the spider, actually very gently picks it up and puts it out the window so it can move along peacefully. Um, that is a great metaphor for what is going on in this movie. It's about the, the Maitland's house being invaded, in this case by the Dietzes, and them you know, being unable to peacefully extricate them. Uh, the, the model that they are trapped in, it's interesting. So they're, they're sort of trapped uh, in their own house where they had tried to have a staycation and work on that house just before they died. And they spend most of their time looking at this model of the town that's up in the attic. Um, that becomes very much a metaphor for them you know, and where they are in their lives. They are stuck. They are not really moving forward. Even you know before they died, we get the sense that you know they were trying to start a family and they couldn't. Uh, and they, they can't move forward. The Dietzes are trying to kind of move forward with their lives, but they are very much in, going in different directions. You've got... Uh, uh, Charles Dietz, played by real-life monster Jeffrey Jones, who just wants his quiet life in the country, and Catherine O'Hara, um, who is looking to totally remodel the place and break it down and make it hers to work on her creepy Tim Burton-esque sculptures. Um, and then you have Lydia, who seems to just want to die. Uh, she's too goth for her own good. Um, so while the, the Maitlands are kind of stuck moving in the same direction together... The Dietzes are stuck moving in different directions, uh, still you know, kind of tied to one another through family bonds. Uh, and all of this is, again, them having trouble adjusting. Um, Beetlejuice is not a person who has trouble, quote-unquote, adjusting, because he's a sledgehammer. Um, and Michael Keaton plays him that way. Uh, the original choice to play Beetlejuice, by the way, was Sammy Davis Jr. That's who Tim Burton wanted. And I think uh, Sammy Davis Jr. could be a very debonair ghost, but... What Michael Keaton does is so wildly different. Large parts of his dialogue were improvised. Um, but I think what really makes it work is this sort of willingness to kind of go all the way to 11. Um, this kind of performance would, you know, it's, you know, you could see Robin Williams easily doing this. In fact, Beetlejuice is sort of the dark mirror version of, say, the genie from Aladdin. Um, he'll you know, do lots of voices and impressions and, you know, just throw out one-liners in any which way. He doesn't care, um, but he is filthy and dirty and everything else. Um, one of the, Michael Keaton was in large part responsible for the look of the character. He went into the makeup chair and he said, you know, I want to look like I have moss growing on me um, that I, you know, because I'm just this gross, grubby uh, character. Um, he really helped drive that look and the performance. And I think there is no movie without him. Without this particular performance, 
you slot any other actor into this role and you don't, you know, e- even if you keep all of the other, you know, wonderful, weird things about the movie, um, you don't get what we have here. Um, so let me kind of walk through the movie a little bit, just some of the memorable things in it. And, and again, always looking to, in this podcast, answer the question of why. Why do we feel nostalgic for this movie? What is it about Beetlejuice that grabs us? That you know, that makes us still you know pull this one off the shelf. I you know I uh, went to Spirit Halloween with my kids over the weekend, and they had an enormous display of just Beetlejuice stuff. You can buy the 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 neon sign that points to the grave. You can buy the grave that lights up. You can buy a little handbook for the recently deceased. In addition to all the other stuff you would want, tchotchkes plushes of um, of uh, Barbara and Adam Maitland with their faces distorted. There's a market for this. And the question is why? What is it about this movie that makes it worth remembering and, and entering into our nostalgium, our canon? Um, I, I think part of it is just, you know, obviously the fun of something seasonal um, that's going to be back. But that's true for almost any horror movie. And there's plenty of horror movies that uh, that we don't come back to every year. Part of it is that there's very few horror comedies, and certainly not on this level. Maybe Young Frankenstein. Uh, I think if you're a 90s kid, that might be Hocus Pocus for you. Uh, but this one uh, is special. And I think part of it is this sort of universal, universally um, uh, accessible version of the afterlife. The movie obviously completely takes the Judeo-Christian concepts of the afterlife and tosses them in the trash and does it in a way that is not offensive to, I think, a, a person of faith in a way that says this movie is going to be a fun fantasy. And again, part of the fun is the Maitlands finding out that the afterlife is not as advertised. It's full of you know, creeps and weirdos and more importantly, a bureaucracy. Um, you've seen something like this in uh, Albert Brooks's film Defending Your Life. But this idea that the afterlife, much like life on Earth, is about you know signing forms and pushing pencils uh, and caseworkers, uh, you know it it almost is this fun idea of like you're you're not going to actually get away from it. You'll think once you'll die, all that stuff will be gone. But nope, the afterlife is just as you know poorly managed chaos as as uh, the world of the living is. Um, Every time I think the movie takes a step into the netherworld, things light up. And not just because you get the surrealism of Tim Burton's imagination for all of the sets. Um, you get, um, you know, it's when you start to get, again, that better sense of whatever is going on in the afterlife, the Maitlands aren't hip to it and Beetlejuice is dangerous. So they're, you know, they're not in a safe place wherever they are. Um, even when they're in the relative safety of, you know, the netherworld offices. Um, One of the coolest things that they show you in the netherworld is the room full of death for the dead, uh, where they let us know that any ghost who has been exercised just becomes this like moaning, shriveled up version of themselves forever, just drifting in this void. Um, That is the danger uh, that awaits Adam and Barbara at the end of the movie. Um, The, what I think kind of keeps this movie alive, uh, so to speak, is not just this imaginative world, but again, the sense that the afterlife can be fun. Like all of the transformations that Barbara and Adam do to themselves are fun. The freakier versions that Beetlejuice does are also fun. 
Um, it's the kind of thing that, you know, at least when I was a kid, like that fantasy would be great. Like if I could basically shape shift and be this master of illusion, how, what a cool sense of, a set of superpowers that would be as a ghost, even though Barbara and Adam are not very good at mastering those powers. Um, their, their most effective scare is the Deo scare where at least they get everybody to see a handful of shrimp. Uh, it's not very scary. Um, but, but, you know, I think if I was, uh, if I had that happen to me, it would be enough to make me leave the house. I don't need a, a shrimp hand grabbing my face or to be possessed by, by Calypso music. Um, one of the other interesting uh, themes of this movie is, of course, it's an 80s movie, and that means it's all about crass consumerism and capitalism. Um, you know, the destruction of beautiful things, i.e. The, the Maitland's house, uh, to turn it into the monstrosity that is the Dietz version of the house. But also, when the ghosts finally do make themselves known to the elder Dietzes, at first they're scared, but that evaporates very quickly and becomes, how do we monetize the ghosts? How do we sell people tickets to come see ghosts? And by the end, um, Charles has put on an entire slideshow basically explaining how there's going to be roller coasters and you know, people are going to come from miles around just to see these two ghosts that happen to occupy their house. He's already got plans for expansion based on the afterlife, which is a crazy notion to think that they've now just seen irrefutable proof of life beyond death. And the first thing they think of is, oh man, we're going to get rich. Uh, you know, n- not all of the philosophical questions that might come with that sort of knowledge. In fact, you know, Juno says they, they need to get rid of the details and quick because they already know too much about this. People are not supposed to have certainty about life beyond death. Um, so I, I, I like that aspect of it as well. And I think that one of the cool things about this movie is yes, you've got cool characters and cool visuals and cool set pieces. Um, but there's enough there thematically to make the thing work and sing as a, a piece. Um, I think if it was just pure jokes, it, we wouldn't remember it as much. It would just be like, oh, yeah, that kind of cool comedy where, you know, some some ghosts happen. Um, and here we get not only this cool comedy where some ghosts and fun things happen, but also it still has enough to say about us as people and our world um, that makes it meaningful to rewatch. The, you know, I, I'll admit I've seen this movie a million times, and every time I watch it I'll still notice a little something new about what it's trying to say. That doesn't mean there aren't plot holes in it. It doesn't mean, you know, it all hangs together perfectly. Um, the special effects have aged a bit, although I think because they are stop motion animation largely, um, that that charm kind of keeps it interesting as opposed to looking dated. Um, if this movie were made today, all, all of the, uh, the, the manifestations of ghosts and stuff would be CG monstrosities, and it wouldn't be nearly as fun. Um, I think that claymation um, adds a really unique vision to this and, and a kind of whimsical charm that is just absent from CGI. So what do we have at the end? Why, why to add this to the, to the Arcanum, our, our world of uh, pop culture ephemera that we want to hold on to going forward. Um, I know I want to share this movie with my kids when they're old enough to handle it. Uh, and when I'm, they're old enough to repeat F-bombs. Um, but I think it's not just because I personally like Halloween-ish stuff. Uh, I think it's because this movie has, you know, it almost makes death and scary things not scary. 
Um, it, it's a way of, you know, adjusting to that very real concept of, you know, we, we don't think about our own mortality much. And as with all scary things, if you make them funny, uh, it takes a lot of the fear out of it. And imagining an afterlife where, you know, we don't have to worry about, you know, heaven or hell, but really just, you know, killing time. Um, you know, what do you do when someone else moves into your house? Um, you know, just kind of the mundanity of it and it makes death much more kind of interesting and accessible. And it's like, well, yes, we're all going to die someday, but maybe we'll all get to, you know, dance, uh, dance to jump in the line and, uh, it'll feel a whole lot better. Uh, so that'll do it for this episode of Nostalgium Arcanum. Uh, next up, uh, we're doing Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, uh, another Halloweenish thing that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, so, uh, but I want to hear from you. If you have thoughts about Beetlejuice and why you feel nostalgic for it, uh, or you have thoughts about uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera, since that's coming up next, please uh, tweet that to our Twitter account, which is at Nostalgium Pod. Um, that's going to be the contact point for anything related to this podcast. Uh, so, uh, if you like what you hear, go on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, um, do all of the things that you do when you like a podcast. I also want to plug uh, my other podcast, which is uh, currently on hiatus, uh, but it's called A Podcast But Evil, uh, which I do with my buddy Dan Oster, and uh, I'm hoping we'll get that back on its feet soon, but for now, uh, it's uh, in the deep freeze. But uh, we've still got this one, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys from uh, from episode to episode talking about the stuff that we're still talking about uh, all this time later and why we're still talking about it. So with that, uh, I bid you farewell, and it's showtime. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora, work your body liner. Work, 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 Sinora, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora, I tell you friends I adore her. And when she dances, oh brother, she's a hurricane in all kinds of weather. Jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body on time. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body line. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora, work your body line.